Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone. It's Rob here. Just me today. I know James was with you solo last week. Don't worry, we've not fallen out, I promise. We will be back with you very, very soon with regular episodes of the Eurotrip. Looking ahead to Eurovision 2023... But thank you for joining me on what is a little bite-sized bonus. I say bite-sized, not that bite-sized, it's a big bite. It's like one of those massive double-decker burgers, if this were bite-sized. But on today's episode, we are going to be telling you all about a very special event at the BFI. Now, the BFI is the British Film Institute. They're an archive that look after all sorts of old films, and as you will hear, old television programmes. And that is especially relevant for what we're going to be talking about today. But should we get on with it? It's time for the Eurotrip. As you know, Lassandra always said, take it away. Hi, we are Bobby and Magnet, and you're listening to Eurotrip. I don't close any doors. I love Eurovision, I love Berlin Festival, and it will always be a part of me. That night, I found myself live on Russian state television for, for Russia's Song for Europe. I said to Joe, send BBC Teenage Life. Maybe two weeks later, I was at a press conference and I was on Making Your Mind Up. Everyone was like, Eldar, come, celebrate with us. The end of filming, they put honey on my face and I needed to be, you know, sexy with this honey on my face. Hi there, my name is Martin Estudal. I am the executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest. You are listening to Eurotrip. I'm getting a little bit teary. That might be the last time that you hear that iconic intro there from us here at the Eurotrip. 
or at least the 2022 version. As I said at the start of the episode, we will be back looking ahead to Eurovision 2023 very soon. And I should say, just to mark your card as well, before that, we've got something very special planned for Wednesday. Talking of archives, which of course we're doing a lot today, we'll be delving back into the archive of the Euro trip itself on Wednesday. So stay tuned for that. There's a very special reason we're doing that, but you'll have to listen in on Wednesday to find out what's going on there. But I've already said, today we are delving deep into the BFI archives because they are holding a very special Eurovision event on Saturday. So that's Saturday the 22nd of October. And this is a real treat for any Eurovision fans, honestly. The BFI got in touch. They said, oh, is there any chance you can talk about this? And I was like, yes, absolutely, because it sounds incredible. So they're putting on two sessions as part of their look back at the centenary of the BBC. It's 100 years of the BBC this year. And to celebrate it in Eurovision style, they are opening the season with two very special sessions. Now, the first one is a chance to see a restored version of the 1962 Eurovision Song Contest. Now, that was held in Luxembourg, and it's a contest that hasn't been able to be rewatched, at least from English-speaking viewers, for a really long time. Basically, the BBC only had the footage, and they did not have the audio. But that has all changed, so we'll be hearing from the man that made it all possible later on in today's episode. And also, there is a second session happening on October the 22nd down at the BFI as well. A special panel. I'll tell you who later on, but they include Rachel Ashdown, the commissioner for Eurovision 2023. So thank you for tuning in, everyone. It's just Rob here with you today on this special bonus episode as we tell you all about what's happening at the BFI here in London. That's where I'm speaking to you from, at least. On Saturday, the 22nd of October... 2022 so people who are aware of dates will realize that that is of course this forthcoming Saturday I've already mentioned it in the opener there two brilliant sessions coming up from them on the afternoon of the 22nd that chance to look back at the restored version of the 1962 Eurovision Song Contest for the first time and also a brilliant panel discussion as well looking back through the history of Eurovision as well and to end the afternoon a very unique opportunity to see a lot of often unseen clips of some of the best bits of Eurovision. One of the most alternative looks back that you'll get the chance to to see. So that's all part of the afternoon down at the BFI. And it's important for me to say early on, by the way, tickets are still available. That's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today, because I don't want you to miss out in summary. So if you are interested, after what you hear on today's episode, if you want to go to one of the two sessions, it's £12.50. If you want to go to both, it's 15 quid. Concessions, 12 quid if you want to go to both. Concessions, 10.20 if you just go to one of the sessions. If you're already a BFI member, you pay £2 less. And if you want to go to both sessions, by the way, you have to call in person the BFI Southbank box office 020-7928-3232. I'll give you that number again, 020-7928-3232. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. And of course, if you want more info, you can head online, bfi.org.uk as well. And I'll give you that number and that web address again before the end of today's show. But thank you for joining us. We'll get into today's guests talking all things BFI and what's going on on October the 22nd, all things Eurovision, shortly. 
But first, a very quick one from me to say thank you for all your support after a very exciting week for us here on the podcast. You may have seen that we played a very small part in the National Television Awards here in the UK on Thursday night. The NCAs got in touch with us. They asked if they could use a small section of our exclusive interview with Ukraine's Eurovision commentator Timur Moroshnichenko. And you may have heard that on the programme on Thursday. So a huge thank you to them. And wasn't Timor brilliant, by the way? I think it's uh, safe to say that won't be the last time we see him on stage in the UK over the next year or so, if you know what I mean. Anyway, on to today's episode. And we're going to kick off all things Eurovision and what's happening at the BFI on October the 22nd with Dick Fiddy. Now, Dick is an archive programmer at the BFI. He is passionate about all things archive, television, and of course, that is why he's played an integral part in the Eurovision sessions that are taking place. But I thought I'd kick off by asking Dick more about the BFI themselves, because I think it's only right to start with who are they and what do they do? Yeah, the BFI is a multifaceted beast. It's got a finger in a lot of pies, and it's got a lot of uh, a lot of things going on. And I think sometimes it is difficult for the public to pin down exactly what it is we do. We obviously are here to support and to encourage the study appreciation of film. Our overall brief also includes television, and that's where I come in. I've been working on the television side of things for years. Um, We collect television, British television, as actively as we collect world movies. The archive has, in fact, got more television than it has as movies. And we screen television in the same way that other cinemas and cinematechs screen films. So what makes us unique is we can have these regular TV screenings um, alongside our film screenings. So you're in such a, a unique position, like you say, to be able to to be able to offer this archive up for people to be able to to see into that archive. Sometimes you know lost programs that people may not have, have been able to see for a for an awful long time. I mean, yourself personally, how are you involved in the whole BFI cog? What what wheel are you in the whole system? Well, I think one of the things that, um, if it comes to missing programmes, one of the things we decided to do about 25, 30 years ago was set the BFI up as a central hub for missing programmes. So whenever they come back from anywhere, whether they're returned to the ITV, the BBC, or maybe they're found in libraries around the world, um, we decided that if they would let us know, um, once a year at an annual Missing Believe Wipe screening, we would show any of this mi- missing material. And missing material comes in many shapes and forms, um, like the 1962 Eurovision contest that we're showing. It actually survived in vision, but it didn't survive with the English commentary. It's, you know, the, there was the Dutch version and et cetera, et cetera, which can happen with these international programmes. So the fact the marrying of the audio with the visuals meant that that in many ways is a restored programme. So it was something that would fit into our Missing Believe White Brief and be ready to show. As I've been wanting to uh, focus on Eurovision Song Contest for some years, I think it's a fascinating and interesting programme. And it's something we haven't tackled before because really of just finding a hook to hang it on about how to do it. And so this year with this restoration and with the fact that it made it into our list of 100 BBC game changers, there were there was an embarrassment of riches this year. We could have there was a number of hooks we could have hung it on, but we decided to go with the game changers, hook, which is what we're doing on Saturday the 22nd. 
Absolutely. Now we're going to be talking about, as you said there, that that restored edition of, of the 1962 Eurovision Song Contest a little bit later on. But talk to us about the Game Changers series. Like you say, it's to celebrate the BBC's centenary. So how does Eurovision fit into that? And what else have you got planned for the series as well? Well, what we decided to do was um, we wanted to celebrate and mark the BBC centenary in some way. But if if you just did a normal, you know, the 100 best um, BBC moments, you tend to get a very samey list. There's those things that are always going to be in that list. There's always going to be 40 Towers and only four supporters. There's always going to be, you know, there's going to be the, the regular things that we all know about. So what we decided to do was look at moments in uh, BBC's television history, because we only show television, we we ignored the radio side of the BBC. Other people were celebrating the centenary. The centenary, of course, is the centenary, the first radio broadcast, not the first television broadcast, because they didn't start till 36. But we decided to we'd just do 100 television titles um, to fit in with the centenary. And we looked at titles which had some way altered the landscape, either the landscape of broadcasting or the landscape of society, or the international um, had an impact on the international broadcasting and things like this. So we looked at programmes specifically that we, we thought you could argue, had made a difference. And that meant, that opened it up to a lot of titles that wouldn't have normally made to cut, maybe, and were a little more unusual, and just gave us a different uh, window to look at the history of the BBC through. But Eurovision is definitely on the list, and I think it's, it is a big game changer. Why is Eurovision, in your opinion, such a, a big game changer when it comes to the BBC and, and television and broadcasting more generally? I think after the Second World War, the BBC was very instrumental in helping other countries come on board with their television. They lent the expertise, technical expertise. They lent advice. In in many cases, they lent equipment. So you know they were very they were very involved at the heart of of that idea to um, make a a, univer- a, U- a European broadcasting the Euro the EBU that sort of runs and ministers um, Eurovision the European Broadcasting Union. Um, the the BBC were very very important in setting that up and and in contributing to it. So I think one of the things is. So they tried many things, many different things were covered by the Eurovision banner. But for some reason, the song contest is the one that's stuck. It's the one that's proved to be most durable. It's it's changed over the years to reflect its times and also to reflect the people watching it. It's It's been very good at responding to, you know, the, the, the way that the people watch it wanted to go. I, I would say also it's probably true to say it's rather than... Um, developed, I'd say it's mutated because it's become this like huge, sprawling beast, very, very different from how it was envisaged at the start. Very high camp, massive extravaganza. But by by pandering to the audience's taste, by realising, because it's both, um, it's, it's both up to the minute and timeless. I mean, it doesn't really reflect the music of the, outs- of the outside world, but it reflects a certain type of, of music that appeals to the Eurovision watcher and the Eurovision fan. And I think they've been very good at, at keeping that going. And of course, 
the countries pick their own music. So you do get a, a, a big spread of different types of music. You get surprises like when Lordy win and things like that. You get these, these left field moments. But that keeps it active. I remember in the 60s when I first started watching it, it was one of those programs and there was probably half a dozen of them a year that the whole family watched. So there was, and they were also, there was something you could bet on amongst yourselves, you know, you could pick your winner. So there was Miss World, which everyone watched. It seems so archaic now, you know. There was the Grand National and everyone had their own horse in that. And there was a Eurovision Song Contest, you know, in, it was also the FA Cup final and, and the boat race. These were these annual events that were watched and the family gathered around to watch them. And um, uh, there, there was an element of everyone has their own favourites. So there was a discussion points in it. But so it was, it, I think it established itself as part of uh, that weird part, the annual event, it established itself as an annual event quite early on. And um, there was very few of them, as I say, perhaps only half a dozen, perhaps a dozen in all. It's great fun. There's not many, um, not many programs that bring a smile to your face. You might get heated over who wins and some of the the more um, esoteric forms of voting, shall we say? But in the end, it's it's guaranteed to bring a smile to your face. And of course, the uh, the modern day Twitter feed um, <laughs> that accompanies it of incredibly uh, <laughs> incredibly acerbic comments is is yet another uh, an, another added bonus. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for the part you've played in uh, in putting the whole thing together. So really appreciate it. Thank you for making the time for us. This is the Euro Trip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. A huge thank you to Dick Fiddy there, archive programmer at the BFI, for talking to us all about what we can expect on Saturday, October the 22nd, down there for their Eurovision sessions, all part of their Game Changers season, celebrating the centenary of the BBC. Now, we're going to bring on our second guest now, but before we do, I thought we'd play a little bit of the winner from 1962. Only seems right, doesn't it? Let's have a listen. Premier amour, premier amour, premier amour Ne s'oublie jamais, s'oublie jamais, s'oublie jamais Un premier amour, on le cherche toujours Dans d'autres amours, toute sa vie, on court après Il nous a troublés, fait rêver, fait trembler Ce premier amour, premier amour, premier amour I think you can probably tell from that which country won in 62, if you didn't know already. That is France with Isabelle Aubray and her winning entry, Un Premier Amour, which of course you will see again if you go down to the BFR on Saturday because it is an opportunity to see, as we've heard, a restored version of the 1962 contest for the very first time. So that is incredibly exciting and wouldn't have been possible without my next guest. He's a man whose name I'm sure you will already know. He's called Gordon Roxborough. You might have some of his books. He's an author on all things Eurovision. He's also a journalist. He's a historian. And he will tell us just how he came upon a copy 
of the audio of Eurovision 1962 very, very shortly. He will also go on to tell us the other roles that he will play on Saturday down at the BFI, including that brilliant panel discussion that's happening in the second session. I promise to tell you who was on that panel, by the way. Well, I will let Gordon do the honours in this chat. But to start, I asked Gordon for his own Eurovision story. Oh, I suppose I first fell in love with Eurovision way back in 1968 when I watched it uh, you know, with my parents. And uh, I was allowed to stay up and watch, and particularly when it came to the voting. And to watch Cliff Richard losing by one single point was like, you know, heart-wrenching. So I was like determined to watch it until United Kingdom won. Of course, the year after, we did win, sort of. But it wasn't quite that, you know, outright win. So, yes, yeah, so I suppose initially it was just watching you know, the scoring, I think, fascinated me more than the actual songs. And then as you, you know, and every year it was the United Kingdom, United Kingdom. I was always interested in that they should win. But then, of course, your music taste developed. You think, well, actually, maybe we haven't got the best song this year. Maybe it belongs to Sweden, for example, when it came to ABBA. And then, of course, the UK won in 1976. So it was like mission accomplished in terms of viewing. It's in my music taste, but then are more discerning. And then when it came to 1979, uh, I think actually my brother had the radio on, and it was Radio Scotland. And I was saying, if you fancy being a juror on the, on the Song for Europe contest, on the, the Glasgow jury, just send in a postcard and answer these few questions, like, which year did ABBA win Eurovision? Mm. For someone like me, you know, Brotherhood of Man, what song did they win? It was like three questions, which for me was an absolute dawdle. And as it happens, I get selected you know, to be in the Glasgow jury. But as you may know, in 1979, the Song for Europe was uh, blacked out by industrial action. So we in Glasgow had to, we listened to the songs, first of all, on tape, went for a meal, and by the time we come back from the meal, that's when we discovered there's no show. But <laughs> we needed to select a song. So what we needed to do was just sit and listen to the songs again, basically. And we marked each song out of five. I think I gave Mary Ann three out of five. And I think my favourite was uh, the Nolan Sisters, Harry Mahoney, Lulu Love, which I gave five out of five. However, I also noted down the results, and the results that you find in my book and you find online have come, come from me, because I sat down with a piece of paper noting all the juries down. But the Manchester jury was really slow in getting a connection. But by this time, Blackface had won the contest, so it was like academic. And literally the BBC are going, come on, you need to leave, you know, your time's up. <laughs> so I was unable to get the final score from oh. Manchester. <laughs> So, so the record that exists of the scores is, is down to me. But it was frustrating, obviously, not to have that active part that I really hoped for. And I wasn't over-enthusiastic about the winning song. And, of course, I only finished seventh when it came to Eurovision itself. I think the following year I was busy at college. And then a the year after, I thought, oh, let's see if I get this another bash. I wrote to the BBC and said, look, are you looking for jurors? I was so disappointed in 1979. It was sure and blacked out, can I have another go? And they wrote back and said, yes, you know, we're actually, actually looking for jurors at the moment, you know, that'd be great. But this year, the, the Scottish jury is going to be in Edinburgh. And I'm going, no problem, because that's where I'm in college. I'm in Edinburgh. <laughs> so I was instantly sort of signed up. And obviously watched it that year. Bucks Fizz, come on, five out of five, top mark. Of course, you know, the rest is history. One song for your, one Eurovision, you think. 
well, where can I go from here? I've picked the Eurovision winner. Well, exactly. I, what happens <laughs> next? Yeah, 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 I've reached the top. <laughs> There's no further to go. Yeah. So after that, I really watched it was a sort of casual viewer each year and, and uh, still obviously enjoying it. And then in 1994, I had the chance to get tickets to go to the Eurovision Song Contest in Dublin, which was an amazing experience. You know, much smaller audience than we have these days. And it was the dinner suit, bow ties, etc. And actually, River Dance, I have to say, was the highlight. Just amazing to watch. And I can still visualize the cameraman tracking along the feet of all the dancers and just thinking, well, at the end of this, I'm going to stand up and applaud this. I don't care what anybody else in the audience thinks. I'm going to stand and applaud. Because at the end, everybody was up on their feet with it. Uh, there's most of the Eurovision Song Contest since then. I think I've only missed about two or three between then and 2016. But in 2002, was, that was when I was first accredited as a, a journalist. What's a journalist? You, I'm sure you're well aware that most people are accredited as journalists at Eurovision, not actually full-time journalists. And that was a stroke of luck, because in 2001, in the plane back from Copenhagen, just randomly allocated a seat. And so happened, I was sitting next to a guy who worked for, I think it was the Observer, and we struck up a conversation and realised that he only worked around the corner from where I worked at Smithfield Meat Market at the time. So we struck up a conversation, a friendship. And then the following year, he went, I can't make it to Talon. Yeah. He said, would you like to go in my place? Took about half a second to say yes. <laughs> and then I became a sort of regular sort of fan, stroke journalist for a number of years. Uh, joined ESC today for a while, around with. 2003, yeah, yeah, 2003, I joined ESC today. So that's how I got my accreditation for the next few years. And then I joined Eurovision TV itself in 2010 and worked on Eurovision TV between 2010 and 2016. And during that time, I started working on my books. And again, there's one of those weird coincidences, stroke of luck, because I was interested in the history of the contest, particularly you know, the UK selection. And while Eurovision itself was well documented, there was less material around about the early Song for Europe Festival, British popular song, call it what you like. But I knew that the material, the information would be held at the BBC Written Archives in Gavisham. But they only allow people to go there if they are doing a university thesis or writing a book. Well, there's no way I was ever going to write a university thesis. So, that was so, like, so, so you thought you'd go for the harder job and write an even longer <laughs> book? Well, kind of. Uh, actually, it wasn't even going to be that honourable. I have friends that uh, I know through Dot, because I'm a big fan of Dot Two as well, at, uh, who, are, or who run Taylor's Publishing. And I emailed them and said, look, I said, I'd really love to get into those archives and look, dig and rummage around. Could you say you were going to commission me to write a book? Said, but I don't actually have to do it, <laughs> you know. But just to produce this to the BBC, I got a covering letter, email that we were going to commission Gordon Rotswood to write a book about Eurovision. Can you have access to the archives? And then they actually wrote back to me and said, Yes, we'll do the covering letter, Gordon, but we actually like the idea of doing a book. Yeah, so great. So then I worked on that for, for a couple of years, and the manuscript was probably about that much. And I submitted it and they went, Hmm, very good, Gordon, but that's like uh, posting out a house brick for everybody. How about we split it into volumes, you know, covering sort of roughly each decade? You know? They said that way you'll get more royalties as well because you're 
do five, six times more. So that's what we did. Uh, and that's how the books came about. Gordon, just remind us the the names of the books if people want to want to go and, and and find your books because I've got plenty at home and they are brilliant, brilliant Thank books you. back. So they're called Songs for Europe, the United Kingdom at the Eurovision Song Contest. Volume one covers the fifties and sixties. Volume two covers the seventies. Volume three the eighties. Volume four the nineties. I see currently working on volume five, the first decade of the twentieth century. Fantastic. Now, all of this means that you are the perfect man to be integral for everything that's happening at the BFI on Saturday the 22nd. The first of which, the first event of which would not be possible without you because we've already spoken to to Dick Fiddy on this episode of the podcast and he was telling us all about the incredible work that you did in tracking down a copy of the soundtrack, effectively the audio of Eurovision 1962. Tell us about that. I would, tracking down is maybe a bit strong term. It simply came up on eBay a couple of years ago that a reel-to-reel tape with the audio of uh, BBC transmission with commentary by David Jacobs. And the seller very luckily, fortunately, included a sample of the soundtrack, maybe about two minutes, two or three minutes, you know, as part of the auction. And I listened to that and thought, this sounds pretty good, pretty clear. I'm interested in this. Knowing that it's rare because I knew the BBC no longer held 1962 Eurovision. So I got in contact with the seller and said, would you be interested? Would you take an offer on it? And I really want this item. You know. So the seller was actually in America. And he said, well, make me an offer, which I did. He accepted that straight away. So he sort of changed it to buy it now. So eBay did get the commission. And the deal was done. Obviously, I wanted it sent, registered, signed for, you name it, tracked, whole business. What I had forgotten about was that uh, to be US sales tax to add on top of it. So <laughs> that's a bumped amount up a bit. It wasn't a huge amount of money, a reasonable amount. Considering that a lot, there would be a lot of interest in it, not a lot of people would be able to actually play it back because it's an archaic form of, you know, of tea. But I had people I knew in the BBC and, and contacts who could transfer it, get it cleaned up, digitised, etc., what have you. So... Eventually, of course, it arrived, which was great. I then got in contact with Richard Latter, who's a BBC producer on BBC size. Um, we met up because, again, I wasn't going to trust it to the postal service. It's like physically handing the tape over, you know, and, you know, do the business, see what you can do. So you can back. And it was in the process. He said, my BBC colleagues reckon this is very good quality, Gordon. You know, great. You know, so then I got the digital file back listen to of course which was great but of course that was never the way that it was ever intended to be seen stroke heard so as Dick may have explained uh I'm a big fan of you know archive television anyway I regularly go to the missing believed white uh, screenings each year so I got in touch with Dick and I said it'd be great if we could put this soundtrack and existing an existing film copy together and match them up you know and maybe show missing believed white you know, are you interested? Would you, you know, would you be prepared to screen it? So I got a kind of positive reply from Dick and said, how long does it last for? I said, well, 86 minutes, you know, which is, you think, when you think of Missing Believed Wipe session, that would probably take up an entire <laughs> session or most of it. So he said, so, yeah, I said, okay. You know. So then, because I'd worked at Eurovision TV, I knew the contacts who were dealing with the archive project at the EBU and said, who are you currently dealing with at the BBC 
who's the best person to contact regarding archive material on Eurovision? So it gave me the details, got in touch with them and said, look, I've got this audio, you know, digital file, et cetera. So it's, really, it's off a direct line recording. So it's really good quality. Would you be able to, or would you want to match up, you know, with an existing film print to get effectively a reconstruction of the entire show? Um, say, dig back me up. That wasn't some sort of nutter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and because uh, once they said, yeah, send it to us, and the agreement was we'd keep it quiet under our hat. Because that was a couple of years ago now, but then along came COVID, so that kind of slowed the whole process down of people working from home. And restoring the 1962 Eurovision wasn't exactly the top priority for the BBC, understandably. But, but eventually it got done. They sent me through again a digital copy. So I was able to watch and go, wow, they've done a really good job in this. You know? And uh, there's a few amusing exchanges of, of emails. And this will become clear when you see it on the day. Because it's in a reel-to-reel tape, you know, and here's the actual tape itself. Of course, it comes a point where you have to turn the tape over. So there are a couple of gaps, very small gaps, you know, where the tape was, was turned over. So the BBC are writing to me or emailing me and saying, we've got picture and no sound, and then other bits we've got no sound, but we've got a picture and sort of idea. Yeah. I said, yeah, that's because when the tape was turned over, there will be no sound for a few moments. Uh, one of the, the turnovers occurs during the interval act, so there's no real loss there, you know, because that can be if necessary, taken in from another copy. So actually, at the end of the day, there's only about 30 seconds. It was really missing. The rest is otherwise complete. And regarding the sort of uh, having the sign but no picture, as you may be aware, there was actually a power cut sort of in the middle of the 62 contest. Now, the Dutch print, which the BBC have used, whoever was in the Dutch archives just decided to go snip, snip, and and take the the entire power cut out so it goes effectively from France into Norway, one song after the other. But of course, David Jacobs' commentary goes on for about 90 seconds of going, well, the lights have gone out, and this has gone on, and that's gone on. So what will happen when you see the contest uh, at the BFI is for about 90 seconds, you'll have a blank screen, but you'll still hear David Jacobs' commentary and how he fills in during that gap. You know, what a story. And also, it wouldn't be Eurovision without something like that going wrong, would it? I mean, you know, Gordon, you've obviously delved back through the history books and, and not just in the 62 contest, of course. I know that's the one we're focusing on there. But, you know, there are so many instances, aren't there, of, of things not going quite right, things going a bit wrong. And that's what makes Eurovision so special. Oh, indeed, indeed. And hopefully some of these will crop up in the clip section in uh, session two when we when I've had another delve into the archives. What a brilliant seg that was. We've done this before. <laughs> so so we've talked about 62, which is going to be absolutely fantastic for people to, to, to look at and to watch on Saturday at the BFI. And then, as you have so brilliantly mentioned, comes your next special moment for you and everyone else who's there, because you're hosting a, a panel looking at the history of Eurovision, the ever-changing face of the Eurovision Song Contest, and some brilliant people on that panel as well. Do you mind talking us through who you've got joining you? Well, we've got uh, Rachel Ashdown, who's the lead commissioner for uh, Eurovision 2023 in Liverpool. And we'll be talking about the challenges that uh, face the BBC in staging the contest and uh, see what areas she's responsible for and what areas she's not responsible for. Uh, Rob Holly from Eurovision TV, he's head of content there. Probably some to say on the subject. 
And more than likely, we're going to have Stephanie de Sykes, a uh, composer of two UK entries in 1978 and 1980. And no doubt she will talk about the changes, not just in Eurovision, but in the actual whole music business has changed over the years from physically selling sig uh, singles to uh, downloading and streaming, I suppose. Well, there are so many different things we can cover off in that panel with those different guests, aren't there? You know, I can only assume you hope to get, surely, as well as discussing how the contest has changed. But I think the audience is going to be very interested in all the gossip ahead of next year's contest. And you've got people there perfectly placed to do that. Indeed, indeed. So, And I'm sure when we open the questions to the audience, I have a feeling that it's probably Rachel who's going to get the bulk of the questions. But I shall try and be a fair chairman and distribute the questions evenly. Well, there you are. I mean, if ever there was a if ever there was a pull to get you to go to the event on Saturday, it's the chance to ask the commissioner of Eurovision 2023 some questions. So, you know, if ever there was anything that was going to get you down there, it has to be that. But Gordon, how much are you looking forward to to Saturday and everything that's going to happen at the BFI? Uh, I'm really looking forward to it because I say this has been sort of like in the pipeline, part of my dream for the last couple of years, particularly the 62 Eurovision. Um, so. Every time I saw Dick, I was saying, are we going to do anything about Eurovision? 62, are we going to do it? Are you going to have it missing believed wiped, et cetera? And then when he said, oh, we're thinking of actually doing a kind of, not quite a day, but nearly a day of Eurovision. I'm going, well, that's good, even better. And then he asked me, said, would I be interested in maybe hosting the event and you know, doing the interviews? And again, that was one of those that took me half a second to say, Yes, not only will be interested or be available, I'd be delighted to do it. It's you know, like an added bonus to actually present the, the panel. Fantastic. Well, thank you on behalf of everybody else for all of your brilliant hard work that's gone into everything that's happened before the event. All looking forward to Saturday. And uh, yeah, Gordon, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. This is the Euro Trip. A huge thank you to Gordon for joining us on the Euro Trip podcast. And a huge thanks to Dick Fiddy as well. Both of them telling us all about those brilliant sessions happening down at the BFI South Bank on Saturday here in London, Saturday, October the 22nd. If you liked what you heard and that's piqued your interest, then you can get yourself some tickets. I promised you I'd give you the number and the info all over again. So if you want to go to one of the sessions, £12.50, concessions £10.20. If you want to go to both, £15 for an adult, £12 concessions. If you're a BFI member, it's £2 less. And if you want to go to both sessions, then you must call the BFI South Bank box office. That number is 020 79283232. That's 020-79283232. Of course, that number for anyone listening in the UK. And if you want more information, of course, then head online as well, bfi.org.uk. But all set to be a fantastic afternoon. A chance to see Eurovision 1962 for the first time since it's been restored, which is hugely exciting. And then that brilliant panel discussion. We've got Rachel Ashdown, the commissioner of Eurovision 2023. So she will have plenty, of course, that you're going to want to hear about. Rob Holly, head of content for the Eurovision Song Contest at the European Broadcasting Union. He'll be telling us all about what we can look forward to across all their channels in the run-up to and during next year's contest. And also, of course, singer, songwriter, writer of two UK Eurovision entries, Stephanie de Sykes, hoping to get down there on Saturday as well. And that brilliant compilation that Gordon hinted at that will end the afternoon of some lesser-known Eurovision clips that you'll get the chance to see, all thanks to him delving into the archives. 
But a huge thank you to you for tuning in to today's episode of the Euro Trip. We will be back on Wednesday, like I said, with our own deep dive into our own archive here at the Euro Trip, doing something a little bit different. And we'll tell you why then. But before then, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate us five star, leave us a review and subscribe. That's very much not the order that James normally says it in. Me and James will be back together very, very soon. But from me, it's goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.